0: Thor and Hulk uh, from what is, in my opinion, top three Marvel movies. Ragnarok. Anybody agree with me there, by the way? Thor and Hulk certainly do have a lot to be angry about. The god of thunder lost his parents and has been banished to a garbage planet. Uh, Hulk was a victim of a scientific experiment going wrong. Now he is a violent, green, oversized monster. What is even worse is that when Thor and Hulk get angry, they don't regrettably say a few bad words that they have to apologize for later. With godlike powers, they leave a trail of destruction behind them. In a rage, Hulk has leveled entire cities. Thor can do the same when he brings the hammer down. Uh, Just a couple of hot headed fools, indeed. Power and anger are a dangerous combination. It's one thing to get angry. It's another thing to get angry with the power of the gods in your fist. In the book of Isaiah, we read about a real God with real power and real anger. Apparently, this God can get angrier than even the angriest superhero, and he can be more violent than you will find in any Marvel movie. The subject of God's anger is a difficult one for reasons that we'll discuss, but it's unavoidable. Especially if you're reading the book of Isaiah, which we happen to be reading. We're studying Isaiah here at Rooftop in a series called Isaiah for Today. Isaiah was a Jewish prophet who lived in the nation of Judah eight centuries before the arrival of Jesus. God had commanded his people to live holy lives, be a light to the nation. For the most part, they completely ignored those instructions uh, God sent prophets to warn them to clean up their act, but they didn't. Finally, God sends one se- final prophet to warn them of their coming destruction at the hands of their enemies. Uh, this prophet's name was Isaiah, and he leaves behind a big book of prophetic poetry. And we're studying that book to learn what we can about God, about ourselves, about God's plan. Now, Isaiah's book, it's so big and complicated that we've broken it up into seven mini mini-series. And our third miniseries is called The Lord Is... Uh, during this series, we're looking at who God is, what we learn about him, what he's like. Uh, we've learned that so far that God is sovereign, that God is righteous, that God is just. And we also learn from the book of Isaiah that God can get very, very angry. God's anger burns brightly in Isaiah. The words anger and angry occur 37 times in the book. Uh, wrath occurs 20 times. Vengeance, that word, occurs seven times. Punish occurs 13 times. There are plenty of angry passages in the book of Isaiah in which God makes plain his displeasure against his people. Uh, Some of these passages are fairly graphic. I had plenty to choose from. And while I don't want to overwhelm you with the wrath of God this morning, I also don't want to shy away from some difficult texts. So let me share with you a few of the angry passages from the book. Uh, Like here in chapter 30. See, the name of the Lord comes from afar. With burning anger and dense clouds of smoke, his lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. His breath is like a rushing torrent rising up to the neck. He shakes the nations in the sieve of destruction. He places in the jaws of the peoples a bit that leads them astray. Or here in chapter 34, come near you nations and listen. Listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. Yeesh. How about chapter 51? Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Your sons are filled with the wrath of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. Honestly, I could go on. Isaiah is at times a very angry and bloody book. The picture we get in Isaiah is of a God who is very loving, very forgiving, but can also get very, very, very upset, sometimes at the slightest offenses. In many ways, the God of the Old Testament reminds me of Andy from The Office. I don't know if you know Andy from The Office, but Andy could be very, very, very lovable, but he could also lose his temper easily punching walls and throwing tantrums. And he actually had to disappear for a few episodes to go to anger management training. After reading the Bible, you might think that God himself needs to disappear for a few episodes (laughs) to go to anger management training. And that's one of the first things we need to acknowledge this morning. The anger and the violence of God can be unsettling, even offensive. Uh, Frankly, it's one of the reasons why a lot of people in the world just don't believe in God. Maybe, for example, you've heard the name uh, Richard Dawkins. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, famous atheist. I don't know if you can see his t shirt here. It says, Religion, together we can find the cure. (laughs) At the very least, it's funny. Uh, Dawkins, famous atheist who writes very critically about Christianity. And here's what he writes about uh, the God of the Old Testament The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction fiction jealous and proud of it a petty unjust unforgiving control freak a vindictive bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser a misogynistic homophobic racist infanticidal genocidal filicidal pestilential megalomaniacal sadomasochistic capriciously malevolent bully that's from dawkins book the god delusion title says it all he he doesn't mince words to his credit Some people are so offended by God's anger and violence, they refuse to believe. Other people don't necessarily not believe in God. They just adjust their theology accordingly. Centuries ago, for example, there was an entire branch of Christianity called Marcionism. Turn to your neighbor and say Marcionism. So Marcionism, named after its founder, that's him. It's probably not actually him, but that's an ancient rendition. Marcion believed that the God of the Old Testament was too violent to have anything to do with the God of the New Testament, who was personified perfectly in the love of Jesus. Marcionites believed that the Old Testament God was basically a devil, and that the Father of Jesus in the New Testament, a God of love and forgiveness, was the real God. I've actually met a lot of people who think this. They don't call themselves Marcionites, but I've, heard, I've met people who said, I'm more of a fan of the love of Jesus in the New Testament. They're Marcionites, they just wouldn't call themselves that. The problem here, though, is that Jesus never distances himself from the Old Testament. Jesus never says, oh, you know, that Old Testament deity, so violent, so mad, I'm different than him. In fact, Jesus does the exact opposite. Jesus identifies himself as the Old Testament God. On top of that, sometimes Jesus gets just as mad, you can't really believe in Jesus without believing in his Father. Still, another way we try to handle the anger of God, though, is by interpreting it away. We call God's anger an anthropomorphism. Anybody remember that phrase from poetry class in high school, an anthropomorphism? Turn to your neighbor and say, anthropomorphism. That wasn't very good. Let's do this more slowly. Turn to your neighbor and say, more. Fizz Very good An anthropomorphism is when we ascribe Human attributes To non-human objects and deities Like in Beauty and the Beast When a clock and a candlestick Are portrayed as human beings That's an anthropomorphism They're not human beings I mean they actually are human beings Before the curse took over the castle But that's kind of beside the point But we do this in religion too We describe God in human terms because human terms are all we know. Uh, Because we get angry, we assume God gets angry. Maybe Isaiah is describing God in his own limited categories. Maybe God doesn't get angry really. We just think he does because we think in human terms and human beings get angry. The problem with this is that if we get rid of God's anger by calling it anthropomorphic, we also have to get rid of other things, like God's love and his compassion. If God's anger is an anthropomorphism, why not his love? What sort of God are we even left with if we explain every human being or every human attribute of God away as anthropomorphic? Besides which, how do we know that it's us who are describing God as angry? Are we thinking of God as angry because we get angry? Or are we thinking about God as angry because God actually gets angry? In fact, maybe we get angry as humans because God created us to be like him, not vice versa. What I mean is that the Bible says we are creating the image of God. That's what Genesis says. We are creating the image of God. We didn't make God. God made us. So maybe we get angry because God made us in his image and God gets angry. So even though it's unsettling to think about God being so angry and even violent, cutting them out of the Bible isn't a solution. If you want to worship Jesus, you have to worship God, his father, uh, the God of the New and the Old Testaments. And as we read in Isaiah, that God is capable of getting very, very angry. Hulk-like angry. Angry like raging fire, not smoldering ashes. Not angry like Thor. Angry like Hulk. But at this point, we actually need to leave the superhero parallels behind us entirely. Why? Because as we learn from the Bible, God's anger is very different from the sort of anger we're familiar with. His anger is not like the Hulk's anger. Uh, One of the reasons we get offended by an angry God is because we think of God as angry like us. But there is a world of difference between the way we get angry and the way God does. What we feel when we get angry is maybe best described as petty, uncontrolled rage. Petty, uncontrolled rage. Where uncontrolled rage. Okay, it'll, it'll pop up eventually. <laughs> <laughs> but what God feels when He gets angry is maybe best described as righteous, completely justified, righteous indignation. And they're different. There's a difference between uncontrolled rage and righteous indignation. In fact, there's lots of differences between God's anger and ours. But two of the key differences between God's anger and ours are that God's anger is short and slow. God's anger is short and slow. When I say that God's anger is short, I don't mean that he has a short fuse, just the opposite. I mean that his anger is temporary. It doesn't last long. As the prophet writes of God, I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry. And as the prophet, uh, the psalmist writes, for his anger lasts only a moment But his favor lasts a lifetime. When God gets angry because of our sin, and when he decides to act on it, it's temper. He's not always angry like the Hulk. This actually might be hard for us to accept. Because we know people who actually are always angry. Unfortunately, sometimes some very influential figures in our lives. Maybe your dad was just always angry. Maybe your mom was like always on the verge of exploding. Anybody have a mom or a dad like that? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> In fact, that might be one of the reasons that you have a hard time accepting the idea of an angry God because it makes you think of your perpetually angry parents. On the other hand, this is sort of a natural thing for us. Even my kids are afraid that I'm angry all the time, even though I'm not I know I'm not. I have to reassure them repeatedly after I get angry with them. I stop being angry. They upset me. I say so. I punish them. I'm ready to move on. Please, can we move on? I'm not still angry. If I'm angry anymore, it's because you won't let me not be angry. (laughs) Please, let me not be angry. (laughs) Same thing with God. He's almost always ready to move on. He doesn't like being angry. Who does? For some reason, that's hard for us to accept, though. It's hard to accept that God's not angry with us anymore. Maybe that's, that hasn't been our experience. The other way that God's anger is different from the Hulk's anger, or our anger, is that it is slow. One of the most important descriptions of God in the Old Testament, I think, is that he is slow to anger. As we read in the book of Exodus, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness so yeah god gets angry but he is slow to anger he has a really 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 long fuse or should i say is a really 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 long nose what nose? and pastor matt just say nose yeah it's a really 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 long nose here's what i mean you're gonna love this the phrase slow to anger in Hebrew is a fun Hebrew phrase. It's erach apayim. Turn to your neighbor and say erach, erach apayim. The phrase actually means, literally, long nose. Not like Pinocchio, different. You see, when ancient Hebrews felt emotions, they described those emotions in terms of their body parts. They felt compassion in their bowels. Life and joy resided in their heart. And when they felt anger, they felt it in their noses, which makes sense. When you get angry, a lot of times you feel it in your nose. Your nose burns hot. It turns red. Your nostrils flare. This is why the Hebrew word for nose means anger. But what's interesting about God's anger is this. He is slow to anger, which is why the Hebrew here means that God has a long nose. What does that mean? It means that it takes a really long time for him to get mad. His long nose is really long. We worship the God of the long nose. Amen? <laughs> Amen. We worship God for his mighty arms, his strong back, and his ridiculously long nose. Somebody should write a worship song about God's long nose. Gosh, I hope that happens. (laughs) I hope Jason right now is like thinking, oh, we're going to make this happen. We, on the other hand, are a bunch of short-nosed people. (laughs) Uh, We get cut off in traffic and our nose burns hot. God's doesn't. God's nose can take centuries to burn. We actually see this in Isaiah. I mean, think about it. What's the story of Isaiah? Isaiah. God has been enduring with the nation of Judah for centuries. They've been practicing idolatry. Uh, They have been uh, violating the poor. They have been sacrificing children for a very long time. Now, God hasn't been silent through all this. God has sent them prophets telling them to stop. But he hasn't brought the hammer down yet. This is the very opposite of Hulk flying off the handle. God gets angry, but it takes a very, very long time. He wants to give his people every opportunity to repent before he brings the fury, which eventually he does. He does have his limits. After centuries of warning, he's had enough. He withdraws his hands of protection from his people. He lets Judah's enemies come against them in a fiery rage, but only after giving them a very long time to choose a different path. God's anger is short and it is slow. Ours is long and it is quick. Now, honestly, there's plenty to talk about regarding God's anger. It's a very prominent theme in the Bible, one that a lot of people have wrestled with. Though all we could keep talking about it, I want to move into some application. I want to talk about the so what question. What does it matter for us that God is angry? What does it matter for us that we worship a God who gets mad? I actually think it means a lot. And before we close, I want to share with you three implications to the anger of God as far as we're concerned. What does it mean for us that God gets angry? Well, first, God's anger means that he cares for us. God's anger means that he cares for us. In Isaiah chapter 5, we read, Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised, and he strikes them down. What's really important to see in this verse is this little phrase here: "His people." God gets mad at His people." God is upset with His people. His people are Judah, His nation. They are His children, as God says earlier in chapter one. I reared children. I reared children and brought them out, so the next verse, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me." God is angry with his people because he cares for his people. If God didn't get angry with his people, it would mean he doesn't care, but he does care. God's righteous indignation is a sign of his concern for his children. I mean, the nation, this nation is the nation he formed. He formed them out of nothing. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He's the one who gave them the promised land. If you're a parent, you understand this. I do. I mean, when other kids disobey their parents, it doesn't really bother me. I mean, it's irritating, they shouldn't. It's kind of annoying to Watch. But when my kids disobey me, it drives me crazy. It gets my gizzard. Why? They're my kids. I love them and what's best for them. When they disobey me, it's usually because they're choosing their own rebellious path. The normal reaction for a parent in those situations is to get angry. Now again, I know many of our parents and authority figures did a terrible job communicating their anger. Some of them scarred us. I'm not justifying that. In fact, the book of James says man's anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. One more time, for all you angry people, man's anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. God's anger is different than ours. It's slow, is justified, is short. My point here, though, is that his anger is a sign of his love. He wouldn't get angry at us if he didn't love us. I mean, have you ever met a parent who just doesn't care anymore? <laughs> They don't get angry at their kids because, you know, what's the point? Well, they're going to do what they're going to do. God doesn't like that. He will never not stop caring, which means he will never not stop feeling angry. In fact, his anger is one of the things that allows us to connect with him. When God created us as human beings, he created us with feelings. He created us with feelings because God himself is a feeler. One of the ways we connect with him and with each other is through joy, sorrow, disappointment, anger. Those are feelings God feels. And one of the reasons we have difficulty connecting with other people and even with God is because we don't know how to feel what we're feeling. We are emotionally stunted. Men especially are emotionally stunted these days. I was just talking to a friend of mine a couple months ago about this. I told him I thought he needed to get angrier in life. I told him, I thought you'd be a better father, husband, and leader if you gave yourself permission to get angry. Appropriately angry, but angry. He was surprised. That's not something that a lot of pastors tell their congregants. But when properly felt and conveyed, anger shows our loved ones that we care for them. God loves us too much not to be angry with our stupid, disobedient, redundant choices. God's anger means that he cares for us. Secondly, God's anger shows us what should make us angry. God's anger shows us what should make us angry. God's anger is telling because it reveals what he cares about. We get angry at silly things. We get angry when our sports team loses. Or when the waitress screws up our order. Apparently, those are the things that are really important to us in life. God gets angry at other things. What does he get angry about? Well, what we have learned in Isaiah. He gets angry about when we ignore the poor. When we don't show hospitality to immigrants. Uh, when we practice sexual immorality. When we get lazy and greedy and hypocritical. I'll tell you one of the things, though, that makes, that seems, according to Scripture, makes God the angriest, though. You know what it is? It's the neglect of Children seems to make God really furious. Uh, we see this in Isaiah with God's constant demand to care for orphans. Whatever you do, make sure you care for orphans. And we also see it in the life of Jesus, too. In the Gospel of Mark, for example, there's a story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. Maybe you know the story. People are bringing little children to Jesus so we can bless them. And if you know the story, what did Jesus' disciples do? Jesus' disciples rebuke the parents and tell them that Jesus is too busy and important to have to deal with their children. And what does Jesus say? Well, Mark tells us, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. This is the only time in the Gospels when Jesus gets indignant. He gets mad in the Gospels on a handful of occasions, but this is the only time he gets indignant mad. In fact, I like to imagine Jesus saying this with his indignant mad voice. Let the little children come to me. And parents with their wide eyes are like getting their kids, go, go to Jesus. Fast, quick, go to Jesus. And the children are like, oh, no, 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 not anymore. Not interested. But this isn't the only time that Jesus gets mad about children. Earlier in the book, Jesus says: if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Whoa. Jesus said that. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. In other words, if you harm or mislead a little child, it would be better to die with a large rock around your neck in the ocean than have to face what God is going to do to you. Jesus said that. There are some things that just really, really piss God off. The protection of children is one of them. And here's the point. It should make us mad too. I was listening to a podcast this week about the rampant sexual abuse that took place in the Boy Scouts. This hits home to me. I was raised a scout. More than 88,000 men, more than 88,000 men so far have filed suit against the Boy Scouts for failing to supervise scout leaders who raped and molested them. One victim describes years of rape by a 20-year-old leader who was allowed to sleep unsupervised in his tent for years, raped him repeatedly on scout trips. This should make us mad. Lots of things about our world should make us mad. In fact, if we don't find ourselves getting mad, we don't know God. How can we know God and not be mad at what makes him angry? What makes you mad about the world today? Racism? Environmental destruction? Government corruption? Rampant abortion? Christian hypocrisy? That makes me mad. Your hypocrisy makes me mad. My hypocrisy makes me mad. Of course they should make us mad. They make God mad. And what makes God mad should make us mad. God's anger means he cares. God's anger shows us what should make us mad. And lastly... God's anger gives us incentive to obey him. God's anger gives us incentive to obey him. I don't mean to suggest that God's anger is always good. Uh, God's anger indicates his displeasure. Divine wrath should be avoided at all costs. That's the understatement of the day. Divine wrath should be avoided at all costs. And it can be. God is like any parent whose anger is a deterrent for his children not to do what they are thinking about doing. As God says in the prophet Jeremiah, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, well, look at this. Then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. If you change your ways, I won't be mad. The threat of God's anger should make us rethink our direction in life, all of us. You see, we're all making bad choices in our lives. We're all living too materialistically, Selfishly, we're missing opportunities to serve the poor we're divorcing our spouses for selfish reasons we're having sex with people we're not married to now it might not feel like God's angry at us right now for these choices I mean when we make them it's not like a thunderbolt lightning bolt strikes us here on earth (laughs) that was bad might not feel like God's anger at us at those moments but remember what we learned about God's anger He has a very long nose. He's slow to anger. He's giving us every opportunity to repent and change our ways before we face judgment, because we will. Death is our day of judgment. On the day of judgment, we'll receive our just punishment for the lives we lived or didn't live here on earth. On the day of judgment, his nose will run out. We read about this in Isaiah also. The prophet calls it the day of destruction. In chapter 13, he writes, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. God's anger is coming and we will feel it. I know this is a crude example, but it's like what some of our mothers told us when we did something bad, when we were kids. What did our mothers say? Just wait. Until your father gets home. And Belsa's mom said that. The thought of our fathers walking in the door and finding out what we did would make us think twice about making that mistake ever again. Just wait, Matthew, until your father gets home. I should add here, and don't tell this to my mom, who I believe is watching this online anyway. That when my mother said that, it never really bothered me. My dad's kind of a softie. Maybe you know him. When he got home and he heard what I did, he'd tell me, hey, did you do something wrong today? I said, yeah. He's like, well, don't do that again, okay? I'm like, okay. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> but I'd always pretend to be terrified by what my mom said. No, don't tell my dad. Don't tell dad. He's going to want to have a pleasant conversation with me. No. <laughs> because I didn't want her to brainstorm more serious consequences. <laughs> I wanted her to think that that was the worst she could do. Now, to be sure, God can certainly be a softy. But you need to know, people of rooftop, people of St. Louis, you need to know that on the day of destruction, God's not going to be a softy. He loves his creation too much. He loves us too much. He loves justice too much to be a softy. On the day of destruction, we will see the fullness of his wrath. We will see his nostrils flare, his nose hot and wrinkled. All our sins will be punished. Our laziness, our lust. We will receive from God what we in our sin justly deserve. And if always wanted, we will be separated from him forever. But it will not be a pleasant separation. If the Bible is to believe, it might involve a lake of fire. that's what the day of destruction holds for us of course it doesn't have to there's a way out the way out is jesus to be a christian means many 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 things but one of the things it means to be a christian it means that we have escaped god's wrath when Jesus died on the cross he made the payment for our sins that we deserve that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross God's anger was appeased because of Christ's sacrifice if we believe in Jesus God's not angry with us anymore for anything we've done anything we're doing and anything we ever will do Jesus took care of that permanently and because he did We, who have given our lives to Christ, will always only know God's joy. We will always only know God's forgiveness. We will always only know God's grace and life, not his wrath, not his vengeance, not his anger. As Jesus says in the Gospel of John, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. God's wrath remains on the unrepentant who reject Jesus and continue in their life of sin. If you're living a life of sin without repentance or faith, you're not going to like it when your father gets home. But it doesn't have to be that way. God's anger is slow. He has a long nose. He gives us every opportunity to change our ways. And you can change your ways this morning. You can repent of your sin, believe in the Lord Jesus, and escape God's wrath. He loves us too much not to be angry with us for the lives we're leading. But he also loves us too much not to give us every opportunity, according to the length of his nose, to choose a different way. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for Isaiah's graphic portrayal of your wrath. Nobody wants to hear about it. We want to picture God in our minds as loving and kind. But parents who are only loving and only kind all the time are terrible parents. Their children grow up lazy and selfish. You have higher hopes for your kids. You have higher hopes for us. We are your children. And of course we make you mad. The world makes you mad. Why wouldn't it? (laughs) Help us feel your wrath, not only as our opportunity to appreciate the gift of your son, Jesus, who saved us from it, but also to make a difference in the world. Your anger might very well be the energy that we need to serve and to care for orphans and to address racism and to serve the poor your anger is is not alone your your anger is an expression of your love but we do more than anything we thank you for recognizing the gift of your son Jesus who saved us from a punishment that we can't even bear to think about the the descriptions in scripture of the day of destruction they're beyond what we can comprehend but we don't need to Because by faith in Christ, we've been saved from that. And help us feel the burden to share that good news with our friends and family who have not yet been saved from your wrath. Thank you for everyone's attentiveness this morning. I praise you for that. I know that there are seekers and skeptics and non-believers among us, and the anger of God is a thing. It's for me. It's a thing. But we want to understand, we want to be humble and open-minded, and we want and we don't want to be afraid to engage truth just because it's hard. I'm going to close our prayer time this morning, Father, with the words of the Apostles' Creed, as we do on the first week of every month, words that remind us what we believe, who we are, what Christians have, what has joined Christians together for centuries. Whereas words that will appear on the screen for those who need them. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.